It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 143, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Wendy and Asher Burkhart Spiegel raise about 12 acres of vegetables at Common Thread CSA in Madison, New York, in the central part of the state. With 20 years of experience doing CSA, Wendy and Asher have continued to emphasize CSA in their current operation with additional sales at farmers markets and to wholesale accounts. At Common Thread, Wendy and Asher maintain a community-focused vision for their farm. Prior to Common Thread, Wendy and Asher managed a nonprofit CSA farm in Poughkeepsie, and we talk about how moving to their own farm had an impact on the experience of engaging with the community, as well as other aspects of their farming experience. We dig into their programs for subsidizing shares, their education-focused apprenticeship program, and the realities of an increasing minimum wage in New York. Out, of, out in the field, Wendy and Asher share their development of a tractor-scale permanent raised bed system and how they've sourced and modified tools to support that system. We also talk about the solutions they've found for successfully cultivating in their raised bed system, season extension in the field and in the cooler, and the planning they do for a CSA program that includes box deliveries and free choice on-farm pickup. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by High Mowing Organic Seeds, the first independently owned farm-based seed company proudly serving professional organic growers with a full line of 100% certified organic and non-GMO project verified vegetable, herb, flower, and cover crop seeds. Highmowingseeds.com. And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by BCS America, BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com Wendy and Asher Burkhart Spiegel, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank Thanks you for having us. So glad you could join us today. I'd like to start off by having you tell us a little bit about Common Thread CSA, where you guys are located, what you're doing, and, and how much of it you're doing. So uh, we're in Madison, New York, which is pretty much the geographic center of the state. Um, we're not in the Capital Region. We're not in the Finger Lakes Region. We're not in the Hudson Valley. We're not in the Adirondacks. We're not in the Catskills. <laughs> we're yeah, between it's called all of New those York. things. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're about four miles from the town of Hamilton, New York, where Colgate University is, uh, which is a significant part of our marketing plan. We grow about 12 acres of veggies. Uh, this year, we had about 18 acres of plantable beds available to us. Um, so about a third of that we own, and then the remaining two-thirds is in two different lease fields close by. We do about 330 CSA shares, two farmers markets, and uh, a bit of wholesale here and there. And most of those CSA shares going then into the town where Colgate is, right? I would say uh, it's about half uh, that's on-farm pickup, and the other half we are sending to, we do like a Syracuse run and a Utica run and a small number go down to Norwich. So we're doing a lot of drop-off sites. It's about 15 drop-off sites for the um, other half, which is delivered shares. And about how much of your business is CSA and, and how much is the farmer's market and wholesale? Yeah, so our budget is is around just a little over 300000 and probably over 200000 of that is um, CSA shares. And then it's about 
50,000 for farmers markets and then the remainder we're doing in wholesale. And the wholesale has sort of been an unexpected uh, piece that we've sort of been increasing as it's been a little harder to get CSA shares in the last two years. Uh, we've been doing more wholesale and finding that to be more of a good thing than we anticipated. <laughs> we've been doing CSA for 20 years now and always saw wholesale as something we never want to do. But uh, now that we've been getting into it a little bit, it's, it's been interesting actually. And it, I'm not so averse anymore. <laughs> Although CSA is really what we, I, I enjoy doing the most. Now you said you've been doing CSA for 20 years, but not all of that has been happening at common thread, right? We've been here about five years. Um, uh, we've, took it over from a couple who ran it as a CSA for the five years before that. But prior to five years ago, we were, we managed uh, the Poughkeepsie Farm Project, which is a nonprofit organization down in the city of Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, we were there for 10 years. And then we ran a small CSA in Durham, New Hampshire, where we were finishing our undergraduate degrees for two seasons. And then before that, we worked for other people on a few CSAs. So We've been doing it a while, yeah. So interesting that you guys spent 10 years at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project before transitioning to your own operation. Yeah, it didn't, it wasn't something we, we didn't go there anticipating being there for 10 years, uh, but it was a really interesting experience. We sort of helped bring the organization from a CSA that was doing a lot of food justice and education work into a sort of nonprofit that had a farm, but was doing, you know, had quite vibrant education and, and, and still does have quite vibrant education and, uh, and food justice programs. So it was very interesting. Uh, we also had children during that time, which sort of made life pretty full. Uh, so we did start looking for a farm, you know, about five years in, but it wasn't too easy to find a farm and we were very engaged in what we were doing there. And, but yeah, after 10 years, we, we managed to, to find one and, and move on. And that was good timing, too, with our children because they were getting to the point where they were going to be starting school and having them being able to live on the farm and uh, having our own business at that point started to make a lot of sense. And the, the Poughkeepsie Farm Project, were you guys salaried employees there or were you were you running the farm as kind of a Wendy and Asher for-profit project? How did that work? So when we got there, we were the only full-time paid staff. There wasn't an executive director or a program director or anything like that. We were salaried and we ran the whole show with considerable volunteer assistance. A lot of volunteers. <laughs> uh, both in the day-to-day -day work of getting the farm work done, but also on the organizational end from the board of directors that the nonprofit had. Um, but, uh, you know, as the years went by, then there were, uh, then there was an education director and then, uh, about five years in, then we hired an executive director. So we basically, we hired our boss into, into her position. <laughs> um, and, uh, we remained salaried um, and uh, more and more and more focused on the farm as a productive entity, but 
we always had our hands in some of the administrative and mission elements of the organization. And we've really brought a lot of that to where we are now, too. I mean, a lot of how we thought of how a CSA could be involved in the community, we believe in a lot and have tried to bring as many elements to this farm as we can, um, you know, as we can without the support of a nonprofit. So tell me about that. When you talk about bringing those elements of being involved in your community to your current location, what does that look like? So one piece is the education piece. Uh, We do run an apprenticeship program here. um, And we developed an apprenticeship program, you know, for the 10 years we were at the Poughkeepsie Farm Project. So we do weekly workshops um, or field trips, but set up weekly education sessions. you know, one evening a week with the apprentices and also just try to set up the apprenticeship in a way where it's a very good learning experience for folks. Um, so we run it largely very similar here to how, how we did there, although the community around us is, is different. So uh, we end up doing more of the education ourselves here because there, there isn't a craft program near us here and we participated in two of them in Poughkeepsie. Um, and then other pieces are just sort of giving tours upon request to the community. So having different school groups in um, by request um, and uh, trying to make the farm as accessible as possible to the members. Uh, we, you know, we have the on-farm pick your own. We do a few events a year. Uh, we do a weekly newsletter that, you know, we really try to, to convey to them what's going on outside and, and, and help them feel a part of the farm, um, help them understand what goes into growing their food so that being a CSA member is, is a learning experience and, and, and a connective experience. Um, and then in terms of the food justice pieces, it's really just about trying to make the CSA accessible in every way that we can. So we have a sponsor chair program where we um, invite members to donate um, money to subsidize shares for folks who are more low income. Uh, we also have a sliding scale. So, um, you know, on a sort of the sponsored share program is for folks who, who need a deeper discount, but we have a sliding scale where people can just do that without any sort of application. Um, we um, also donate uh, food to three soup kitchens in the area. Uh, that's basically the leftover produce from markets and from CSA, but, you know, we take the time to package that up and deliver it each week. Um, And, uh, you know, we accept FMNP at the farmer's market. Uh, We also can accept food stamps, although it's been tricky, the logistics of it. So we're still working on trying to, (laughs) trying to really uh, connect to people who would use food stamps here, but it's something we've been working on. Uh, So I think those are the main, the main pieces that have been, the easiest to bring along and implement here uh, in the context of a, a, a family farm. I'm really interested, especially in, in the price supports that you're offering, you know, both through the subsidized shares and in the sliding scale. Tell me more about how that sliding fee scale for the CSA actually works at a nuts and bolts level. Well, I was doing the calculations for next year, <laughs> just a couple hours ago. So we settle on a base price for the share and uh, it's just the the bottom end of the scale is a 10% discount and the top end of the scale is um, 11% premium. And the way the communication around that goes 
people understand that that premium, any premium they pay above base is supporting people who feel like they can't meet the base price. The suggested price, you mean? Right, the suggested, yeah. Right, so the suggested, we actually tell people on the form, the suggested price covers the cost of growing vegetables, and above that, you're subsidizing folks who can't quite pay the suggested price, and, you know, pick, pick wherever on the scale that, that works for you. And uh, we've just done that for two years. We, we've done the sponsored share par, uh, program the whole time, but we actually introduced the sliding scale two years ago when we had to make a pretty big hike in um, in our share price, just because we, uh, between minimum wage going up and realizing that we ourselves were not um, paying ourselves enough, uh, we had to sort of do a significant price hike two years ago. and. Uh, introduced the sliding scale at that time to just sort of soften that. Um, and that year, uh, we sort of explained why we were doing it. And we got a lot of, like, we, we ended up getting a lot of extra money and were able to sponsor a lot of shares that year. Whereas this year, we didn't, it didn't sort of come with an explanation and we came out sort of below the suggested goal. Um, but we all, since we all do the sponsored share collection sort of in addition, uh, then we can also apply some of the money from the sponsored shares toward subsidizing the sliding scale as well. So we try to just sort of make it come out even. Anything people donate above the suggested or for sponsored shares goes to sponsored shares, and, and it's been working out. So the sponsored shares, that's actually something where if I was signing up for your CSA, is there like a line on the on the membership form where I could say I'm going to put $50 towards sponsorship shares in addition to whatever I'm paying on the sliding scale. Right, right. Yeah, we give a, people an option to to give donations when they sign up. So that's that's usually when most of the donations happen. Although we've had some people just from the community who've just given us found out about it and given us uh donations um and then uh in terms of the folks who get the sponsored shares that's they just contact us and we give them an application um, uh, to sign up for one. And then we just keep, if we don't, if we get more people than we have funds for, we just keep a waiting list. And eventually we've been getting to everyone. This might be a wait sometime. And all of that has worked out financially for you guys. That hasn't presented too much of a burden. No, no, that, no, it really hasn't been. I mean, because we only apply, I mean, when we get the donations, then we give them away. Uh, but we, until the, if if we don't have the the funds available, then we just put, put people on a waiting list. So um, we're not handing out more funds than we have the money there for. So it it really isn't a burden. So you mentioned that the sliding scale program actually started at least somewhat in response to realizing that you weren't paying yourselves enough. How did you come to that realization, and what made you? decide that you weren't paying yourselves enough like because you know we're market farmers right we you know most most folks aren't paying themselves enough that's that's kind of i i think more the norm than not the norm well we, we were just doing our books at the end of the year doing our taxes and seeing that you know and doing the math and realizing we weren't paying ourselves minimum wage <laughs> um you know which uh you know, I would think that's the bare minimum of what's what's fair to be asking our the base of what's fair to be asking our CSA members to be 
to be sort of meeting. Um, uh, and that's partly, uh, I, I think just a number of factors. It takes a couple years when you start a, a new farm, a new business uh, in a new place to understand what your costs are going to be. So yeah, we our projections were not correct <laughs> uh, on a few fronts, uh, particularly labor. When you go from working with volunteers, <laughs> large numbers of volunteers, to not having lots of volunteers, um, you have to do things differently. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we were we were underestimating the amount of labor that we needed um, initially. Uh, yeah, it was really just from looking at those. Another factor in that year that we increased the prices more significantly was that was around the time that New York State initiated its minimum wage increase, uh, you know, stepwise increase in minimum wage. When you say stepwise increase, like started a, what's going to be an ongoing set of increases for the minimum wage? Correct. It's what, 70 cents a year for, uh, is it five years, Wendy? I can't remember. Something like that. Basically, the year we started, um, uh, which was when we had sort of a five-year budget projection for how you know it would go for the next five years, minimum wage was seven twenty-five, which you know we paid more than that then. But uh, over the next couple of years, it's going up to twelve fifty. So over just uh, you know just a, a six or seven years or so, it will go. It will almost double. Uh, so, and we're, we're not upset about that where we think that's fair. People should be making more money. It's just means that we have to adjust our share prices, uh, to keep up with that. And also to still be able to pay ourselves, uh, with all of those sort of financial realities. And then I think if I'm putting the pieces together correctly, that you said that was at the same time that you started having trouble filling your shares and started doing more wholesale. Is that right? Yeah, but I really think it was last year was the first year that we weren't able to grow the CSA. Um, as far as I could tell, it seems like that was an issue for all the CSA farmers that I talked to. And I heard about that being sort of a national trend. So um, I didn't connect that to being as much to do with our share price as it just being a uh, a bigger issue out there that CSA shares were not on the increase anymore for whatever whatever reason certainly also we've uh started doing more small shares um and this year uh we didn't quite fill our shares in the summer but we had a change from uh last year two-thirds of our csa was like the standard size and one-third was a small share and then this year that flip-flopped so that we had two-thirds of our csa were small and only one-third was the standard so that was uh you know, a lot more people that we had to recruit uh, for the same amount of vegetables. Uh, I, I'm not sure what all the factors are, um, but yeah, that's a piece of it also. It sounds like your shares are, you guys are packing the shares and then people are, are picking those up. Is that right? No, uh, the, the, well, the delivered, the boxes are a pre-packed box. Um, the on-farm shares are uh, more of a free choice system. So the different share sizes are assigned a different number of items per week. 
but then they are selecting, say, a standard share is eight items. They're selecting their eight items off of a list of easily 20 different vegetables. So two on-farm shareholders can walk out of the distribution room with two completely different CSA shares in any given week. Yeah, we've actually come up with a CSA. For the on-farm shares, we've come up with a system where we grow as wide a variety for as long of a season as possible. And so that's that's actually been really great. It's uh, People like it a lot, and it's worked really well, but we sort of figured out we don't need to grow a lot of fennel or kohlrabi uh, or celeriac, uh, but we can still supply them for the season and, and really increase the variety by growing a wide variety of crops. But for the boxes, we're designing a box sort of that is going to please the largest number of people based on surveys and, and also based on what people take in the room. It gives us a pretty good idea of what is most popular, but then also to try to give it on a schedule uh, that is reasonable. Uh, and in addition, we, we give a swap box at each site so people can swap out an item for something else to try to, to help deal with the fact that one size does not fit all. And it, it's worked pretty well. But of course, you know, for some people, CSA just isn't going to work that well if they can't pick out their own items. So the box share definitely has more turnover than the on-farm share. So it must be interesting trying to plan for both of those different CSA systems. Like you said, you can keep a a small amount of kohlrabi or fennel or celeriac available over a long period of time for the folks who are picking up on the farm. But then for that other large group of people who are getting boxes, you still have to plan to have occasional surges of product. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Excel spreadsheets are our friend. We do the crop plan at this point all in Excel. and The box share plan exists as a grid um, with all the possible vegetables down the left-hand side and all the wheat across the top. And, you know, if we want to put eight or nine or maybe 10 items in a box any given week, we might plan as many as 12 items to account for any crop failures or anything like that. But we'll pepper the kohlrabi once or twice in the season and the celeriac once at the end and the only give beets a certain number of times and chard is every third week approximately. Well, um, it's, it's, so more, we, it's not quite that often. Yeah. Right. So, so all of that is mapped out in detail and then we build a crop plan that's consistent with that box share plan. Yeah, we sort of have, we have a, a, an idea of, you know, how often to give certain items and we're checking in every year on surveys about, you know, what people feel they got too much or too little of. And it feels like it's a pretty good plan at this point. And with the CSA, I mean, you talked about differences in turnover rates and, and I think certainly what you talked about with people who are picking up on farm and using the free choice method, having less turnover than folks that are using, that are getting boxes in Syracuse or Utica, do you guys have a pretty steady core of CSA members or are you dealing with the high turnover that so many farms are? On the on-farm, we have a really great core. Um, And I think that's not only that the on-farm is very appealing because we have this free choice system, we have the on-farm pick your own, but it's also, you know, it's a small community and we're uh, the only CSA farm right here 
yeah, and we have like an enthusiastic core of people who are who are great supporters. So so that's wonderful. Um, yeah, for the box shares, you know, people have different options of which CSA to go to. We might never meet them, so we don't have as personal relationships with with as many of those folks. So it's just a different it's a different kind of setup, and it's it's not surprising that you know that our turnover is definitely higher for that. We do offer that all of our box share members are free to come to the farm. They can, with a couple days notice, they can cancel their delivered box and come pick up their share on the farm. Uh, even if they don't pick up their share on the farm, they're free to come do uh, the pick your own element of their share at any time. We post picking limits for the pick your own area in the distribution room. And uh, delivered shareholders can pick twice whatever the stated limit is, since they're not going to make it out to the farm as often as a on-farm shareholder will. And how often do the box share members take advantage of that opportunity? Uh, it really varies. Some people only live 20 minutes away, um, and and folks from those communities might come more often. And then some people, you know, at Syracuse are a full hour away, and they really might come once or twice or they might never come. Certainly when we have strawberries or raspberries or then when the cherry tomatoes come in, they're sort of like certain crops that have higher appeal. And so that might get people out when we say, you know, the raspberries are in, come out now. And <laughs> that might get people to come out at least once or twice when those crops are in. You also mentioned that, that a couple of years ago, you started doing more wholesale sales and that you were kind of liking that. So our wholesale kind of has two different components to it. We have a, a small list of uh, restaurants, mostly, I guess, and then the local college that are easily within our delivery area. Either they're on our route or they're just down in town four miles away. So we send out a list to them once a week and they place an order and we deliver the order with our CSA shares or when we're taking the kids to piano lessons. <laughs> so that's been working nicely. Um, there's also a, a small uh, wholesale distributor based in Syracuse that we've been working through. Um, and uh, those are two different outlets with two different sets of pros and cons, but they've both been, uh, they've both been working each in their own way. You guys are distributing crops, whether it's wholesale or to the CSA, over a pretty long period of time. Yeah, that's one of the things that's really funny about having moved up here from Poughkeepsie. We've we've gotten at least a zone, if not more than a zone colder, but we distribute for a much longer season. <laughs> uh, and it's all just because we're in a more rural place, so we've had to push the push the edges. Um, into basically we had to do winter shares, uh, which has been fun, but it does make for a very long season. So yeah, we're distributing. We, we start right at the first week of June, which is when we started in Poughkeepsie. Uh, so we have to uh, use a bit more season extension to get started that early here. And then we go through the end of October and then we start up with biweekly boxes or approximately biweekly boxes from November through January. Uh, and that's been interesting to find out <laughs> what we can store and what we can uh, hold. And uh, it's, it, it's been interesting. I, I really, 
you know, the first year we just launched right into it and did it just based on what we'd read about uh, cold season, what cold season growing. And, and we just learned what would hold into what time periods, what we had to cover, how and when. And, and of course, every year is different. This year, has been, this fall has been so warm that a lot of stuff that uh, we would have covered more by now, we, we have sort of minimally covered this year. But yeah, it's been an interesting experience. I, I've been shocked at how well things hold in the cold. And when you say hold in the cold, you're actually, you've got crops that are planted in the field that you're holding out in the field for harvest. Is that right? Into December. Yeah, we or I guess into, we have harvested some greens out of the hoop houses in January, uh, but that's been definitely not something we've been able to count on every year. We have, we have lows of like minus 17 here uh in the winters and there was one january we never came out of freezing at all not one day so we know we can't count on that but we have been able to hold uh greens under row cover in the in the hoop houses using caterpillar tunnels and low hoops up through december we actually put our our brussels sprouts and leeks under low hoops because we went down to zero over thanksgiving one year and we actually lost our leeks and brussels sprouts end of November, but we've, we've been able to keep them longer by putting them under low hoops. And we moved caterpillar tunnels onto kale and spinach patches. So we were able to pick those and also things that we planted in the hoop houses into December. And that's worked pretty well. But we're also doing a lot of storage crops too. So there are a lot of things we're just holding in storage as well. What kind of a setup do you guys have for your storage crops? Uh, we just, uh, there's two walk-in coolers in the barn, uh, and we pack them full. Uh, we've got one space in the barn that we can heat. So we keep the winter squash in there. Um, the onions end up in there too, because we're out of room in the coolers. Uh, this year, it looks like we're going to have to find a little bit more room <laughs> to, uh, store some crops than we actually have available. Which is... I mean, if you're going to have a problem, right, that's a good problem to have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so how many, how many shares are you guys selling in the wintertime, and, and how much storage do you have to have to accommodate that? Uh, so we're uh, about 100 shares, 110 shares this year. Um, what pushes us over our storage limits is not the CSA shares, the, C the, the carrots and beets and cabbages that we need for the winter shares would easily fit into our two coolers. It's having that extra that we're then going to wholesale out over the course of the winter that, that pushes us over that storage capacity that we already have. So, I mean, what are we talking about? Uh, I guess I could open, I could open that file and, and read off numbers. <laughs> um, let's see. We, we strategically placed me at the computer. <laughs> So, well, with a buffer, we're putting away 3,500 pounds of potatoes. That'd be the single biggest thing right there. So you can fit that on two pallets. And most everything else would fit uh, on one or two pallets. You know, so beets take up a pallet, carrots take up a pallet, onions probably take up two pallets. Um, so it's that kind of volume that we're talking about. And are you guys harvesting those things into plastic totes and storing them? 
or are you using are you using bulk bins or or how how do you guys handle those winter crops? Yeah, that's so yes, a scale appropriate material handling is is a is a little bit tricky. Uh, so what we've been doing this year, we have put things in bulk bins. We do the winter squash in bulk bins and the cabbages in bulk bins, but we don't have a bin dumper or a wash line that we could dump a whole bin's worth of carrots out into. So we're bagging them in the field, stacking them on a pallet in the field, forking the whole pallet into the barn, and then we can roll that pallet's worth of bags right next to the cooler um, so that then we're just handing the bags into the cooler. I don't know, as my back gets a little older, even just avoiding lifting a 40 or 50 pound bag of carrots into the back of the truck uh, and back out of the truck again, uh, instead just stacking it on a pallet in the field, somehow that feels like a great innovation. (laughs) Though it'd certainly be easier if we could dump them into bulk bins and just deal with bulk bins. Although I know on, on my farm, we stored a lot of our winter crops in bulk bins just from a cost and materials handling standpoint for getting things out of the field, but we didn't have a bin dumper uh, on the other end. And so we were, we were pulling things out by the handful or by the, you know, trying to, to sort of shuffle things into buckets and pull the buckets out of the bins. And it was, was actually a lot of work on the other end and not a whole lot of fun. Right. Yeah. We played around with that with just one or two crops over the last couple of years. And it just felt like, bagging them and stacking the bags on a pallet just felt just felt easier given given how our wash and pack facility is set up that feels the easier solution i was going to say something about the the harvesting of winter greens uh i think a, a point that needs to be made is that not only do we get the cold temperatures but the sun becomes a very unreliable friend uh, right about now. So um, if if we were down, if, if the daytime temperature was 10 degrees, but the sun came out, we could harvest greens. <laughs> but if the daytime temperature is 10 or 20 degrees and you don't see the sun for a couple of weeks in a row, then, then we've just frozen up. And with an, uh, with unheated tunnels, we, the product, the spinach or the kale or the whatever doesn't thaw out for us to harvest. Uh, that's been one of the limiting factors in greens production for us. I think it's something that's really underestimated in, in its importance for winter production is, is the actual amount of sunshine that you get in the wintertime. Uh, you know, if you, in my experience in, in Decorah, Iowa, you know, which had, which is at about 43 degrees of latitude. And you guys are more or less at 43 degrees of latitude as well along that I-90 corridor. Yeah. That when we had sunny Decembers, we were banking heat that whole time. And we could go, we could handle lows outside of minus 30, minus 35 degrees and everything inside would be fine. But Mm -hmm. if we had a cloudy December and then maybe January was you know, zeros and minus tens, we would lose crops because we didn't mm-hmm. have the heat banked in. The soil would actually freeze in the high tunnels. Yep. It's And so yep. it, I don't think it's the absolute temperature that really matters. I think it's that, it's that whole combination of how the climate works. Yes. 
Yeah, and we're far enough from the Great Lakes that we don't get the lake effect snows that some of the closer cities do, but that means we're far enough that we don't get warmth off of the lake, but we're definitely close enough that we get clouds off of the lake. <laughs> um, so we can be quite cloudy through the winter. With the shares going into the wintertime and the wholesale going into the wintertime, are you also keeping your employees into the wintertime as well? We have one uh, who uh, is a year-round employee, but part-time in uh, January and February. Otherwise, we have folks here for eight months or shorter. Some folks here just for the summer. Are most of your workers, I mean, do they fall kind of into the employee category or are they more in the apprenticeship side of things? We have had usually about four apprentices um, and we do also have a, a the year-round employee, his position as senior crew member uh, is what we're calling him right now. Um, and then we have summer folks who are more part-time employees. So. Uh, Yeah, usually it's been about four apprentices. And you mentioned that that apprenticeship program, you guys are putting a lot of effort into making sure that it's actually an apprenticeship program and not just a source of cheap labor. Right. Right. No, that's very important to us. We were both apprentices in the (laughs) mid-90s and uh, definitely came out of that feeling very grateful to have had that experience and... um, wanting to sort of pass that on, but also being very aware of how it can be misused. At that time, there were definitely apprenticeships where the education wasn't as front and center as it needed to be. So we've been very careful about that, about making sure that people are learning. Uh, And also part of that has been encouraging people to move on (laughs) uh, when we feel like it's time for them to move on, which, you know, it would be nice to have people here for longer, but I think Often people, for their own need to keep learning, uh, we've, we've encouraged them to move on to other positions at times. To be perfectly clear, uh, as far as we understand from a legal perspective, we may call them apprentices, but the Department of Labor considers them employees. So, you know, everyone is paid at least minimum wage and has workers' compensation coverage and all of that. So. From a legal perspective, they are employees. Uh, We are just recruiting people who are interested in an on-farm education. And then in addition to simply training them to do the work that needs to be done on the farm, we train more people in more different aspects of the work than we would if we were just thinking of them as employees. And then we offer these separate out of the workday educational opportunities. Um, so we're recruiting people who are interested in that. Are your apprentices getting paid on the same pay scale as your employees? Yes. Yes. At this point, since we've been sort of trying to keep up with minimum wage, uh, that's what we're paying, except for folks who return for another year, then they get paid more. How do you structure? the educational opportunities for your apprentices? So once a week, uh, we do an education session uh, after work, uh, which can either be a field trip to another farm, or it can be, we have about maybe 10 or so workshops that we uh, 
can can run for them. Uh, and we we have them tell us what they want. So we kind of give them an op, uh, a list of these are all the workshops we can give. These are the farm videos we have. These are the different farms we could ask to go visit. And what do you guys most want to do? And we'll schedule sort of the things they're most excited about for make sure we fit those in. Uh, there are certain workshops that uh, we always do. We say these are important ones and, and people, you know, generally agree. So there's some that we just sort of start off with soil management and uh, uh, tractors 101. And uh, we always do one where we're reviewing the farm plans with them. We always do one where we share our budget with them. Uh, those are sort of key ones that we always do. But then others, it's really according to their what they're interested in. So that's that's that piece. Um, we're also sort of passing along other opportunities. So if they want to go to something um, else happening in the area, they're aware of it. We can try to schedule time off um, for them to go. Um, and and the other piece is just being very intentional about about their training on the farm that that we're giving them challenges for where they're at personally um, and that we're aware of what, what their learning goals are and trying to help them meet them in terms of what, what skills um, they're, they're acquiring um, each season. And each person has areas of responsibility so they can get better, you know, have a lot of practice at cultivation or greenhouse or whatever it be. So we do have people sort of end up specializing in certain areas but then everyone does end up kind of coming in and having a chance to do some greenhouse work. And of course, everyone does harvest and they, they get a chance to sort of see every part of the farm, but then they get that more in-depth time on either a particular tractor or a particular uh, area. What's the difference then on a day-to-day basis between an apprentice and a worker on the farm or an apprentice and a, and a standard farm employee? Well, the, the, the apprentices outnumber the standard farm employees. Do we have any standard farm employees? Uh, I mean, we have some people who are just with us for the summer who may not think of themselves as apprentices and may not take advantage of, of the educational opportunities. And then there are some part-time folks who likewise aren't. So the, the apprentices are the core of the crew. And over the course of the season come to be leadership for the other people who come and go a little bit more over the course of the season. With that, we're going to stop here, take a quick break, get a quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Wendy and Asher Burkhart Spiegel from Common Thread CSA in Madison, New York. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by High Mowing Organic Seeds. When your livelihood depends on the quality of your seeds, you need to be confident in your investment. And when you grow organically, you need to know that your seeds were selected to perform in organic conditions. High Mowing offers professional quality seeds grown by organic farmers for organic farmers. Purchase your seeds from High Mowing before December 21st and receive a 10% discount through High Mowing's Community Supported Seeds Program. This program is just like a CSA. Customers purchase seed shares supporting an independently owned organic seed company. And as a thank you, you receive 10% off the value of your share. Shares can be purchased in any amount. For details, visit highmowingseeds.com slash save or call 866-735-4454. You can also request a free copy of the 2018 High Mowing Organic Seeds Catalog. 
Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost Company. Vermont Compost Potting Soils promise you the presence of all the complex and humus-bound and glomalin-bound biota and proteins and nutrients that you need, and they promise that there will be no genetic material viable to compete or confuse your efforts. That means no weed seeds. And that, of course, is this crazy unnatural condition. But of course, you know, so is putting things in pots. Vermont Compost Company uses art and science to imitate nature and support plants within this unnatural condition. And that's why Vermont Compost provides an ideal medium to grow high-quality transplants. And while it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program runs from September 21st through December 21st every year, taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com. And we're back with Wendy and Asher Burkhart Spiegel from Common Thread CSA in Madison, New York. I'm interested in how you guys are actually growing your produce. And one of the things that came up when we were getting ready for the show was about your tillage system and kind of a that you guys are doing a a, a somewhat permanent raised bed tillage system. Can you tell us about that? Uh, sure. So in Poughkeepsie, uh, we had very well-drained soil and no rock. So a chisel plow and a rototiller seemed like a very good system there. But we knew we were moving to a cooler, wetter climate with some heavier soils. And one of the least fields has quite a few rocks. So it felt like because of the rocks, that a rototiller was out of the question, and because of the climate and the soils, it felt like raised beds were a good idea. So we looked around. Um, I guess the initial inspiration for how we've ended up doing things was what we understood Jody and Jean-Paul were doing over at Roxbury Farm down in the Hudson Valley. Although if you look around, there's a surprising number of takes on permanent or semi-permanent raised bed tillage. So the system that we have is um, we're on six-foot center beds. So we have a chisel plow that fits completely within a bed. The outer two banks are directly behind the tires. And uh, we use twisted shovels on those so that you can still see where the bed is after you take the chisel plow through. Um, All the shovels are set to move the soil in towards the middle of the bed. That in itself doesn't make the bed raised, but it moves enough soil out of the tire tracks that you can still see where they are. And then uh, we lucked upon a very nice heavy-duty disc bedder uh, made by Kelly Manufacturing Company down in Georgia. So that's an implement that has four sets of double disc gangs that work to scoop soil up into a rough mound centered behind the tractor. Um, The unit we have even has this uh, spring-loaded leveling door that will then start to level the bed off again. And then we've customized a Perfecta to field cultivator um, to finish off the bed. And all of that, I think, is working surprisingly well. Um, it feels like it's getting better and better. We continue to make little tweaks here and there. Yeah. 
I mean, obviously there's, I mean, I think anybody's tillage system has, has a lot to say about it. And it's interesting when you talk about kind of lucking into the right equipment and, and doing some of those modifications and changes on, on everything. <laughs> Everything's modified. So the, the chisel plow was uh, an eight foot model um, that I don't know why, a, you know, a dealer was selling it real, you know, used, very used, but perfect. A nice high clearance spring loaded chisel plow, brilliant chisel plow that was eight feet wide, but the two outside chisels were just bolted onto the outside edge of the frame. So it was easy to take those off. And in fact, those two extra chisel shanks have become a separate implement. And uh, so now we have a nice six foot chisel plow. Um, uh, even with a modest amount of residue, we it, it could end up clogging up. So we found someone who helped us jigger up um, uh, a set of coulters. So there's a coulter gang now mounted to the front edge of the chisel plow. So it's now kind of a coulter chisel. And those coulters will cut through, you know, say we had a nice, uh, well-grown stand of oats and peas that winter killed. Um, those coulters will cut through the residue so it doesn't end up wrapping on the chisel shank. Right. So that that piece works really nicely early on in the tillage process. And then this disc better that we that we found, you know, Buckeye Tractor will pull will pull together a disc better for you. Um, this has twice as many discs, uh, and it's just a really heavy unit. Um, you know, we pull it with a 90 horsepower tractor and, uh, one of the two tractors that we have, we have to put it in four wheel drive just to pull the thing. So it's a really heavy unit. It does a really nice job. If you've got a lot of residue on the surface, it does a nice job of burying it, not complete burial, but it does a really nice job of incorporating material. And it does a surprisingly nice job of breaking up clogs as well so we can we can chisel plow and disc bed in either order and in the same day more or less but if there's any significant amount of residue after we've done the disc bedding pass we just have to let the bed sit and let that buried residue break down uh, because then the 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 s pines on the field cultivator would just pull any significant residue right back to the surface. So after disc bedding in any significant residue, we'll let the bed sit. And then if the clods have been broken up well enough by those previous steps, we can come through with the field cultivator. If it's still cloddy, then we'll actually take the disc better through one more time. Uh, but the, the field cultivator is just a standard, well, it's a seven foot wide, field cultivator frame with the, you know, the, the perfectors have those nice leveling bars and rolling baskets in the back. But to that basic frame, we've added uh, some side panels that uh, keep the soil up on the bed. Um, and then behind the side panels, we have a couple of hilling discs that um because the side panels do a good job but soil does leak out around them 
So there's a couple of hilling discs that return additional soil up onto the edges of the beds. And so that's, that all works really, really nicely and gives us uh, a nice level, well enough formed, fine enough seed bed for us to transplant or direct seed into and then successfully cultivate. There's a couple of other fun modifications that we've done to that field cultivator. Um, we've added, uh, because weeds would swim between the S pines. You know, if you were three days too late bringing the field cultivator through a stale seed bed situation. Yes. And any weeds were up too big, they'd swim between the S pines uh, and then you'd never get them. You know, they would just keep getting bigger and bigger and keep keep being missed. So we stole this idea off of, we were out in the Salinas Valley in California and a, a tractor salesman just drove me around so I could see things on other vegetable farms. And one guy had a tiny little, a narrow little undercutter bar mounted at the front edge of his field cultivator. So we've just taken a small piece of like weld on bucket edge and we run that in front of the S pines at the very front of the field cultivator and that just slices everything off right below the soil surface. And so that's just running like an inch or two deep to slice off any weeds and then you've got the S tines on the cultivator that are are kind of breaking up the soil and and making it into the nice smaller pieces and really creating that friable seed bed that you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so that's that, that little undercutter bar. I mean, because if we missed weeds, we'd have to bring the disc better back through again. And that just meant, you know, much more intensive tillage and this <laughs> little dumb little piece of metal at the front of the field cultivator just eliminated that headache. And then, uh, well, both the field cultivator and the disc better now also have stabilizing coulters on them because we've got some fields that are on a little bit of a side hill and those implements would want to drift downhill a little bit. And so we've uh, jiggered up some uh, stabilizing coulters so that they track behind the tractor better, which gets us closer and closer to being able to keep our beds truly in the same place from one season to the next. Um, and the advantage of that wasn't even something that we were aiming for. It's just what we've noticed is, you know, your tire tracks get more compacted than the rest of your bed. And so when you go fill up the bed the next time, all of your clods are in your tire track. And if you can keep your tire tracks in the same place from one season to the next, then you're keeping your clods in your tire track where the clods aren't bothering you. Um, and in fact, your tires do a better job of breaking up clods than any tillage implement that you could ever find. So now we can reduce the number of tillage passes we do to break up clods because the clods aren't on the bed top, they're in the tire track where they're not causing any problems. So all of that has worked out. And then you get the advantages of the raised bed. Like when you have too much rain, the water ends up in the tire tracks and your plants can still breathe. So all of that has worked out 
I mean, even better than we had hoped it might. What are you doing to try to keep the tire tracks in the same place year after year? How are you getting those beds lined up? I've looked at the satellite pictures of your fields. It's it's not like you're dealing with just, you know, 10 beds. You're, you've got some pretty wide fields that you're working. Right. Well, so the new fields we have laid out in 10 bed blocks with drive lanes between them so that you do have, uh, we you know, if we do screw up by a couple of inches, it doesn't cascade down the whole field. Nevertheless, we're getting better and better. And the the key seems to be just that at every step of the process, you can tell where the bed was. So uh, I, I think it, it kind of comes back to the twisted shovels on the chisel plow, pulling the soil back out of the tire track so that even when you're done with the chisel plow, you can still see where the bed was. When you're going in and planting cover crops at the end of the season, are you maintaining those beds or are you leveling that field back out again? No, it, it turns out we're, we're keeping the raised beds. It turns out that the field cultivator does a very nice job of incorporating cover crop seeds. So the field cultivator is set up to maintain a raised bed. So we, we spin out the rye and bet for the oats and peas. Uh, and then we come through with the field cultivator uh, running real shallow. And uh, that ends up doing a, a very good job of helping the cover crop to establish. And so the bed, is, even with the cover crop growing on it, the bed is still a raised bed. And with that tool, you're still getting good incorporation even in the wheel tracks. Yeah, the, the cover crop germinates better in the wheel tracks between the, between the action of the tires firming the soil and those hilling discs. Yeah, we get, yes, very, very good germination in the wheel tracks. So talk to me a little bit about your weed control systems on the farm then, because, I mean, you've put a fair amount of effort into making sure that your bed tops can, can dry out quickly and keep your crops happy. I assume that also helps you to stay on top of things like the weed control because you're able to get in there just that much sooner. Well, I mean, the problem always is that the bed top may be dried out, but, you know, the paths are then wetter. So there's definitely the situation where, you know, you come in to do some cultivation and you probably leave the tire track in worse shape than they would have been uh, because they're a little too wet. So we're, we're using, you know, pretty standard equipment for people at this scale. I mean, we have a couple of cultivating tractors and we're using basket weeder for the earliest cultivation, uh, tine weeder quite possibly as a first pass too, depending on the state of the transplant. Um, and then we're using sweeps uh, and then we're using sweeps and that's, that's where we're at. We are not 100% happy with our weed control. <laughs> We've been trying to improve the tools that we do have. We keep hearing about these fancy... Um, the finger weeders, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, they're tempting to try. Um, but just in terms of time and investment, we actually decided it made the most sense for us this year to just put the basket weeder and the tine weeder on the same tractor at the same time so we could do them at the same time and that that would really help us out a lot. 
our mechanic actually didn't end up having time to do that job for us, so we didn't pull off the, the innovation that was going to be instead of finger weeders. So we'll see if we try that again or whether we try the finger weeder next year. But I would say making sure that we get the time weeder in there um, every time that we can, making sure we flame weed on time with carrots, um, and then just being really timely. It's like we're we're always prioritizing. We never can do everything that we should do on the farm, but we do try to make sure we run through everything that can be cultivated every week. And um, I would not say our weed control is perfect, but we don't do much hand weeding, which I guess doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean anything, but it also helps. Actually, we had a big help with our weed control this year in that we took on a new field two years ago that is a significant amount of acreage for us. I think, how many acres is that, Asher? Uh, it works out to five or six acres of beds. Right. And uh, it had been just a hay field, and we cover cropped it for a year before we started using it. And there's really low weed control, uh, really low weed pressure in there, low annual weed pressure. And the, the perennials were pretty well taken care of from that one year of cover cropping. So we've had like one pretty significant field with low weed pressure that we're trying to keep it that way. And it's also been, it's allowed us to like not use a lot of the other fields that we had that had been getting out of control. So I feel like that's really helped us a lot with like starting to catch up with our weed seed bank. So I feel like it's improving, but we do still need to make some improvements to the tools that we have to make it more efficient. And, and maybe, I don't know. Maybe we'll eventually try try this finger weeder that everyone says is so amazing and be amazed, but <laughs> we'll see. It is something that I hear about again and again and again, that it is, uh, I hate the word game changer, but that it's a game changer. What tractors are you guys using for cultivation? Are, are you on an Alice Chalmers G situation? Um, we do have a G that we converted to electric, which for the first time this year, we pretty much didn't use at all. We couldn't ever get it over to our lease fields, which are about a mile on the road and up a significant hill. So we had range anxiety with the electric G. Um, so now we have uh, two, uh, we have an International 274 and a Ford 1710, you know, both offset cultivating tractors. And both of those with a three-point hitch on the back, right? They do both have three-point hitches on the back, yes. Um, so those were that. Uh, those were some things that I wanted to add to what Wendy just said. Um, so, in terms of having the basket weeder and the tine weeder on the same tractor, we were just talking about trying to steal um, Paul Arnold's idea idea over at Pleasant Valley Farm. He's um, rigged up a pine weeder on a three-point hitch toolbar so that he can fold it up or down. Um, so he can be basket weeding along, and if the crop is well enough established to take the tine weeding, he folds the tine weeder down, and if it's not, he folds the tine weeder up. And that's what the, the mechanic slash welder that we work with uh, ran out of time before he got too busy with all of the dairy farmers breaking their haying equipment and stuff like that. So we'll hold his feet to the fire very gently and he'll get that done for us this winter. Um, so hopefully that'll be working uh, for us next season. 
Oh, the other thing that I wanted to add was we stumbled upon a pretty good way to deal with um, the tire tracks and bed edges. So in lieu of a, a true track sweep, we're actually running a 10 or 12 inch furrowing shovels directly behind the cultivating tractor tires. And actually now we have those on gauge wheels. So the tractor operator can just drop the three point hitch and go. And those furrowing shovels are scraping the edge of the bed and they're pushing soil back up against the edge of the bed. Um, so in combination that taking care of weeds at the bottom of the tire track, it's taking care of weeds at the edge of the bed and it's putting a little bit more soil back at the edge of the bed so that the next time we come through with the sweeps, the sweeps have a little bit more soil uh, against that outside edge of the outside rows of crops on the bed. Because that's always a challenge that I've seen with raised bed systems is is controlling the weeds on the shoulder of the beds. Just well, so often I've seen that be the death of the, those systems. Yeah, these furrowing shovels are working really, really well. If they're adjusted properly, if they're biting well enough, then that's not a problem. It, it takes care of it. And I really like the idea of the gauge wheels so that all you have to do is drop them down and then you can just forget about it. Yes, we, we only, uh, we didn't have them until the beginning of this year and we set them up on one of the tractors at the beginning of the season. It was clear within two cultivating sessions that it was going to work very, very well. So we invested in the extra little bit of metal here and there put gauge wheels on the second tractors, track sweeps. And yeah, it's been wonderful. Yeah, it's the touch on putting those that back down is just, it's not very precise. So it's always very tricky to get it just right at the right level. So that has made it so much easier to just put them down and go. I've never put gauge wheels on something that didn't pay for itself the first couple of times I used it. It, it always made the whole system work better. Yes. So I think I saw on some of the pictures that you had online that you guys are using a, a jiffy hitch system on your tractors to, to make it easier to hook up the three-point implements. Yes. So we have jiffy hitches on the two bigger tractors and the two implements that they, that they use. Yes. So you're just using it on those kind of the, the really big heavy stuff. Right. So the, the two cultivating tractors, and then we have one little 40 horsepower tractor. Um, neither, the, none of those have the jiffy hitch on them. Although we would consider if we put the jiffy hitch on that 40 horsepower tractor, uh, that's the one that pulls that um, field cultivator. If we put a jiffy hitch on that implement in that tractor, then we could Mm, that would give us the flexibility to pull that field cultivator with one of the two larger tractors. Um, and that wouldn't be a bad thing, but it's been fine the way it is. Cause that's kind of the problem with a quick hitch system is that, you know, either everything has to be on it that you're going to use, you know, with the tractor that's got it hooked up or, or not, you know, it is kind of, it's almost like right. having, it's like having the old style, I remember I worked on a farm that had three-point hitch implements, and then they also had uh, the old-style Alice Chalmers hookup. And, you know, if you were on the Alice Chalmers tractor, you could only use the Alice Chalmers hookup. 
um, on like, I think it was a WD 45. Whereas if you were on the three point tractors, you could only use the implements that were associated with that. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the reality is that that, uh, that field cultivator is the only crossover implement between the smaller tractor and the bigger tractors. So that's not a real hang up, but yes. Yeah, it wouldn't make any sense for us to have a jiffy hitch on just one of the two big tractors. I mean, it's like having a it's like having a whole nother tractor. I mean, having jiffy hitches on the tractor. I mean, you just hesitate so much less about changing implements. It allows you to do the operations in the order that makes sense instead of, you know, thinking forever about how am I going to go get this. You know, how am I going to do it without changing implements? You can just you just change the implements and do what you need to do. And then, of course, it just feels so much safer to not have somebody in between a big tractor and a big implement hooking and unhooking. How long does it take you to hook up an implement with the Jiffy Hitch? Uh, well, if it's not a PTO implement, I mean, it's really a matter of backing up. You know, I don't know. How good are you at backing up where? <laughs> <laughs> and that's really uh, it then is just backing up square and lifting up that triangle so that it connects with the female part on the implement. Yeah, correct. Yeah. You need to have, you need to have a, a hydraulic top link. Um, so you need to have a, a remote, a remote hydraulic port on the tractor to run that hydraulic top link because you've got to change the angle of the male triangle on the tractor to match the angle of the female triangle on the implement. Um, but yes, it's, it's, it's very easy. Yes. All right. With that, we're going to turn to our lightning round. First, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor, and then we'll be right back. This lightning round and perennial support for the farmer to farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. A BCS two wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO driven attachments like a rototiller, a flail mower, a power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors, and has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time when I was using them thinking of how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Wendy, what's your favorite tool on the farm? All right. I, I think I have to say two. One is I, we have a, a tractor-drawn sprayer, which we got just last year. And I, of course, as an organic farmer, I'm spray-averse. I've been spray-averse. But after, like, 20 years of carrying those backpack things, having a tractor-drawn sprayer is, like, this magical thing. <laughs> so I would say that. And then the, I, my other little one is the fanny pack. Uh, I sort of had years and years of losing my pixie, never, you know, just losing things out of my pockets. And I've started just having a fanny pack where I feel like Mary Poppins in the field. I like, can pull anything I need out of my fanny pack and I have what I need at all times and I don't lose things and people can hand me money and I can safely put it somewhere. <laughs> Uh, so those are my two favorite tools. Okay. So question about the fanny pack. Are your children just mortified that you wear a fanny pack? <laughs> I feel like my 
like now that I'm like 40, I'm like embracing my like, you know, middle-aged nerdiness or something. But I like, I am gleeful. I am totally gleeful about it uh, to all my like apprentices in their 20s. And I actually, I got two of them came in with fanny packs after um, I told them how amazing it was. So I'm not the only one on the farm with one. Awesome. And, and tell me about the sprayer. You said it's a pull behind sprayer. So th- is this something that you're, well, just, yeah. Tell me about that as a three point hitch or is you pulling it down the alleyways or. Yeah. Uh, it is, uh, attached with a draw bar. Um, and it's, you know, a small sprayer, but it covers, um, up to, well, up to six beds if you're straddling a bed. Uh, usually I'm just using it. Well, I can, use, I can either spray two four, five, or six beds, um, depending on the, the configuration. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, that's just amazing after all those years of, you know, carrying those heavy packs, like my back, I just can't do it anymore with my back. So I've had to ask other people to do the spraying instead. And it's wonderful to be like, I can do it. (laughs) Do you feel like your sprays are, are more timely or that you're more likely to put on an application that should be made? than you were with the backpack sprayer? Yeah, that's the other thing. And I mean, we've been, you know, experimenting a lot with these, um, you know, biopesticides and also just like wanting to give things fish or wanting to, you know, like we always, we've had, you know, the same problems with late blight threats as everyone else in the, in the Northeast. So we always sort of maybe got one spray of copper on the potatoes, but it was just like when you're doing it by hand, uh, on our sale, it's like just completely prohibitive to do it more than once. Um, but yeah, no, I think we did it maybe even three times this year. Uh, and actually we didn't get late light this year, but we had some other issues, um, they were trying to prevent. So yeah, no, we have sprayed a little bit more since we have it, but still, uh, you know, just what's absolutely necessary. We probably could do more with, uh, you know, beneficial, uh, nutritional things. And I feel like, you know, it's something that feels more reasonable to consider and to integrate now that we have that sprayer. Asher, your favorite tool on the farm? Well, I have two answers too. Sorry. Um, so anything that has the proper gauge wheels and parking stands on it, uh, <laughs> is wonderful. Um, and then that field cultivator that we were talking about earlier. Um, just It's just working so well with all its little extra bits and pieces. It just, it just does exactly what we need it to do. Wendy, what's your favorite crop to grow? Uh, that's another hard one. Uh, okay, I'm going to say, I guess, spinach. Um, just because spinach is hard to grow everywhere except here. Like we moved here to this cold place and spinach has been super easy to grow. Um, so I love that you can like just direct seed it. It's really easy to cultivate. It just comes up. Uh, we don't have any pest problems with it here and then people love it and it's really high value and we can grow it like almost the entire year. Um, uh, and it's tasty. Uh, so I I would say spinach. And Asher, your favorite crop to grow? So I'm going to say onions. I think they exemplify the improbability that uh, 
growing vegetable or growing all vegetables does. I mean, this little grassy thing turns into this great big hard ball that you know is mostly liquid yet seems to be perfectly solid and it sits on your counter and it makes its own paper. It makes paper and it just sits there wrapped in paper forever and it makes you cry, but then it turns into this wonderful, sweet, caramelized mess if you wanted to. It just seems so unlikely. Uh, it's just wonderful. I love it. All right. And Asher, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Uh, it would have, it would have been nice to have not moved as many times as we have. Uh, I think it comes down to, mm, we could have done a better job of starting our farming careers in a place where we were going to be able to find, um, land to farm, um, so that we could have been building and maintaining networks the entire time instead of having to uh, create uh, or build and find new networks each time we started in a new place. And Wendy, how about you? If you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I think it would be to take better care of your body. <laughs> I think when you're young, you feel invincible, but um, you know, I've had a number of back problems, uh, and I've discovered actually a, 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 a posture method called the go-kale method that I'm all about and so excited. I, I herniated a disc a couple of years ago and um, dealt with a couple of years of farming in intense pain, and I feel like if I had had the right posture and had been better about stretching and maintaining my body um, from an, from a earlier age, I could have avoided um, a few years of a lot of pain and also sleep. <laughs> My brain would be in better shape if I had, <laughs> I had made sure to maintain sleep. So remembering that your body is your most important tool. Wendy and Asher, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Sure, thank you. Thank you, Chris. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 143 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Common Thread. That's C-O-M-M-O-N-T-H-R-E-A-D. We usually use the last name of the guests, but you try spelling Burkhart Spiegel. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit OsborneSeed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. And by CoolBot, allowing you to build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a window air conditioning unit. Save $20 on your CoolBot when you visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash CoolBot. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your email inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support 
of a resource you value. It really does make a difference. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.